John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, before we pray, I just want us to to notice uh, something out of verse 15 real quick. This prophecy from Jeremiah, it says this, fear not. And, And why is that? Why would we not fear? Your king is coming. Your king is coming. Church, we live in a crazy world. It's a crazy world right now. We live in a crazy nation right now. It has lost its mind. Um, we, in many ways, have gone through um, a, lot of, a lot of stuff as a church. And there may be a bit of anxiety or fear or, or whatever in your heart. And I just want us together to look at this verse and ask the Spirit of God to minister it to us. In the next two weeks, as you're like, what is happening? Church, fear not. Your king is coming. And, and we actually get to, we get to look back and be like, hey, he came. This happened. This action, not just like, I hope it happens. He did it. He came. He came. And he conquered anything that you may be afraid of right now. Our king has conquered. He's conquered it. He's bigger. He's in our midst. He is seated on his throne. And so we need not fear. And also we can say with this prophecy, he's coming again, right? He's coming again. He will establish his kingdom. He is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, and my theology is such that if you're his, you're always his. He doesn't lose his sheep. You need not fear that, well, what if the devil or what if I'm foolish or what if America falls apart? Hey, fear not. Your king is coming. So with that on our hearts, a little appetizer of the word of God, let's pray one more time. Jesus, you are king. You are the king. You are the king of kings. And 2,000 years ago, you rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. You came. You fulfilled this prophecy. And a few days later, though you were betrayed and though it seemed as if things were falling apart and the king of kings was captured and, and was hanging on a cross, we know, Lord, it was the fulfillment of your eternal plan. And even as you were hanging there with the king of the Jews mockingly written above your head, you were conquering your enemies. 
and you are doing it in a way that none of us could ever have imagined on our own. You are conquering through your own death by laying down your life as a sacrifice for your people. And we know that you were laid in a grave and three days later, you rose again and you conquered death. And you conquered sin and you conquered the devil. And we know right now you are seated on your throne and you are ruling and reigning all things according to the counsel of your perfect will. Nothing takes you by surprise. Nothing throws you off. No, no plan of any person, no overthrow of any kingdom, Lord, can affect your, your, your rule and your authority, Jesus. And so we as a church, we just want to say that we, we want to believe and hang on to these words that we would fear not for our King came and he's coming again. All of our hope is in you, King Jesus. And Lord, we are, we are prone to fear because as your word says, we're like sheep wandering about in the valley of the shadow of death. And yet we need not fear for you are also our good shepherd. You are leading us. You are caring for us. And you are following us, Lord, before us, behind us. And goodness and mercy will be with us all the days of our life. And we know that if we are yours, we will dwell in your house forever. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who who is yet to recognize you as their king, who is yet to bow their knee to you, Jesus. I ask that by the the power of your word and the the working of your spirit, that they would see the glorious person of Jesus today. They would see what he has done on the cross. They would see the offer that if they would surrender their own kingship over their lives, that if they would surrender and repent of their sins and and trust and believe in Jesus, that they would be saved and they would have a, a far better king than anything else that's on offer in this world. Would you do that today, Lord? And now, Spirit of God, all together, just collect all of our thoughts and our minds and our emotions and just fix them on the person of Jesus as we sit at your feet, as we open your word, as we want to study what you have said, Lord. Would I just be faithful not to share uh, my opinions or my insights, Lord? We, we just wanted together, just look at the Bible and ask that your spirit would help us understand and apply these things to our lives. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, here we are at what is commonly referred to as Palm Sunday. Now, typically we hear Palm Sunday sermons on Palm Sunday, uh, but as we're just working our way through the Gospel of John, we find ourselves in Palm Sunday. Uh, our, our text begins the next day, the next day. And, and as far as, as we can tell, we, we can pretty much assume this is, this is Sunday This is the Sunday, the beginning of of the final week of of the life of Jesus. How crazy is that? We're only in John 12, and yet we find ourselves at the final week of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, It says, the next day, the large crowd that came to the feast, because this is the time of the Passover. This is the, the yearly holiday celebration uh, feast where, where all the Jews, especially the, the Jewish men, would, would come into Jerusalem and would celebrate the day that God delivered them from Egypt. He was the Passover lamb that, that when the final plague came, if anyone took a lamb and slaughtered it and put the blood over the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over that house. 
That was the final plague that allowed uh, the Egyptians to release the, the, the people of God into the wilderness. And so they, they come every year to celebrate the Passover feast. Now, when we think about Palm Sunday, we, we envision rightly somewhat of close to 2 million people in this relatively small town of Jerusalem. And, and, and when we think about it, we, we picture people waving branches and rejoicing and celebrating. On the surface, when we think about Palm Sunday, it seems like a pretty promising day. Like, this is a good day for Jesus. This is a good day for the kingdom of God. People are recognizing their rightful king. And yet right in the middle of all of the noise and the celebration, Jesus actually does something that, may, that maybe we're too familiar with. We've heard it too many times. It doesn't strike us like it should. But right in the middle of this crazy event, Jesus shows up in a way that is, is, is it doesn't make sense. In fact, verse 16 says the disciples just didn't even grasp. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Why is Jesus acting like this? Why is Jesus responding like this? And so we're going to study this verse by verse. And I want us to notice, we're going to notice four unique responses to Jesus. We're going to notice four responses to Jesus as he comes in as the king of Israel. And the the first response we're going to see in verses 12 and 13 is this. We're going to see the political response, the political response. Okay, so let's read these verses one more time. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they grab these palm branches. We're used to this scene. They're saying, Hosanna, they're praising him. And and to be honest, when I read it, I'm like, I, what's here? And it took a little while to dig and understand what do palm branches mean? And what, what is this verse they're reading? And what are they saying? What is their hope actually in? Now, why the palm branches? Why the palm branches? Well, you know, uh, palms were actually part, they weren't part of a Passover celebration. They were part of the Feast of Booths, which would happen like six months later. The Feast of Booths is also where they would remember, hey, God delivered us from Egypt and now we live in the wilderness. And so they would make these little booths of palm branches and and like kind of live, if you will, out. They would go out and live, sleep in tents or these little temporary shelters where they would remember every year as they slept outside that God delivered them from Egypt and they lived in the wilderness. But the palm branches were so that they could know that we're going into a fruitful land. These were date palms in Israel, which, you know, would have like dates growing off of them. And that the palm branch was this symbol of God has brought us out of Egypt into a fruitful place. So that, that the palm branches in the Bible was associated with the Feast of Booths. So, so, so why palm branches now at Passover? Why palm branches now when Jesus is coming in? Well, a little bit of history is helpful. Um, about 150 B.C., the, the Jews were living in Jerusalem. This is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there was this, this, group of, this, this group of people called the Seleucids. And they came and they actually overran the Jews. And they took over Jerusalem and they kicked the Jews out of the temple. 
So that would have been a traumatizing situation. And then this Jewish revolt or rebellion came about. There's a man named Mattathias Maccabees, and he led this revolution to to kick out the Seleucids, to, to recapture the temple, to recapture Jerusalem. He was this revolutionary leader. Uh, you could, you, if this is actually referred to in the book of Maccabees, which is a book that's not in the, in the, in the canon of scripture, but there's some history there. And so he led this rebellion. And as he, as he was leading the rebellion, he lost his life and the leadership was passed to his two sons, okay, his two sons. And one of them, his name was Judas Maccabees. He went and he retook the temple. And then the other son, Simon, he led a a whole group of of Jewish soldiers and they ran the Seleucids out of Jerusalem. And as they ran them out of Jerusalem, when when Simon came back into town, as he was leading kind of this victory march back into their home, their town, their city, the Jews took palm branches and, and this is what they said. Hey, the same way we were delivered from Egypt, And so we have these palm branches. We're going to grab them and we're going to make it this symbol of now we've been delivered again in our own homeland. And so they took the palm branches and they waved the palm branches and they welcomed Simon back into Jerusalem. And so that the palm branch became this symbol of like this national political military victory. If you saw a palm branch, it was, hey, we're the Jews and we, we, we take care of ourselves. We can get rid of oppressors. We got rid of Egypt. We got rid of the Seleucids. And eventually in the, in the Jewish revolt, that would come in a few years and they would actually successfully for a moment kick the Romans out. They minted coins and they had palm branches on the coins. It was a symbol of we are the Jews and we're gonna rule ourselves. Don't mess with us. And so when Jesus comes into town, what's happening here? This is a very political, military statement. Here comes our next ruler. Here comes our next savior. Here comes the next general who will lead us in rebellion. And if you remember, there was about 2 million people there. So there's 2 million people and here comes the leader. And if you were a Roman, it it was a bit of a flex. Like, hey, Rome, are you watching? Are you looking at us? Remember what we did last time? And so this crowd is, is waving these palm branches. And then they also quote a scripture that's significant. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the, and that's an important phrase, even the what? The king of Israel. Now there was technically another king who was ruling that area. And there was technically even a ruler over him. It was Rome. It was Caesar. We would hear the Jews say pretty soon, we have no king but Caesar. But at this moment, they're saying, this is our king. They're quoting Psalm 118, which is this this, uh, psalm. In fact, let me just read it for us real quick. Psalm 118. It says in verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And now jump down to verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now that phrase save us can be translated Hosanna. It's a, it's a Hebrew phrase that, that's translated save us or, or even save us now. Save us now, O Lord. And so what these Jews are saying is, this is our leader. 
with the palm branches. And, and he's gonna save us now because he is our king. We have no other king. This is, this is a movement that is politically driven. They have military aspirations in mind right here. That's what's going on. And, and, and I wanna just think of it this way, four kind of words that sum up the human heart when it comes to politics. They, they wanted an earthly king. They wanted a king to save them now. They wanted an immediate king. They wanted a powerful king. And they wanted a triumphant king. When it comes to those who are politically minded and politically motivated, we're, we're thinking about the now. We're concerned about the headlines right now. We're thinking about this election cycle. We're thinking about what's going on right now. Our horizons are, are generally pretty, pretty, pretty short, pretty temporary, pretty immediate. Uh, we think that victory means, means uh, you win. It means it's power. It means triumphant. It means th- this, this is something we're gonna establish on earth in our kingdom right now. And, and notice how prone these people are to try and take Jesus and use him for their political motivations, for their motivations for an immediate, temporary, conquering kingdom right now. I think it's important for us, church, to remember we do have a king and his name is Jesus and we really have no other king but Jesus. And we need to be careful where we're, we're spending our emotional energy and our hopes and our dreams. And listen, there is nothing wrong with being politically uh, active and engaged. In fact, it, it, especially in a democratic republic like ours, it's even somewhat of a responsibility. That's okay. It's okay to have convictions. It's okay to... Uh, to engage with them, but we, we need to see the danger here of making it, making, making politics and uh, our main concern right now, what is going on? And, and, and look, I wanna take Jesus for my immediate political concerns. That's a real temptation that we face as human beings. And, and we need to notice what is the response of Jesus to these people? How does Jesus respond? Because he knows there's 2 million people. He knows the political climate. He knows when he goes into town the way he is, that it's causing a stir. He knows what he's doing, but, but how does he do it? What's his posture? What's his response? Well, let's look at verses 14 and 15. This is the response of Jesus to the politically minded. It says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It's pretty cliche to say this, but kings generally don't ride donkeys. Um, If you actually know a little bit of, uh, I don't know what you call it, zoology, the, the donkeys in Israel are actually significantly smaller than even the donkeys in North America. If you uh, saw a donkey in Israel, if, you were to, if a grown man was to ride on a donkey in Israel, he would have to bend his knees so that his feet wouldn't drag on the ground. If you were riding a donkey, you, your, your eye level would be lower than people who were standing up. Like there were millions of people with their palm branches and their flex and their excitement. And then Jesus, it's almost funny, rode in on a little, little donkey, a young little donkey. 
like literally could have been about the size of a dog. And he's riding in on this little donkey and everyone's losing their minds. And, and here comes, what is he doing? What is he, what is he thinking? And again, verse 16, we're going to look at this a little bit, but the disciples didn't even understand it. No one could grasp, what is he doing? Now, we know behind verse 15 is another prophecy found in Zechariah 9. And if you want to turn there with me, I'm going to read a few verses out of it. Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11. And if you remember, you know, when Satan tempted Jesus, how did Jesus respond? He responded with scripture. He redirected people's minds. He redirected Satan even to scripture. And so he hears these people quoting scripture. Psalm 118, save us now. And, and what he does is he enacts, he, he enacts, he's like, no, do you know what scripture you need to be thinking about? You need to be thinking about Zechariah 9. You need, you, this is where you need to be thinking right now. And let's read Zechariah 9. We'll read verses 9 through 11. It's a little bit obscure. You may not understand a lot of it, but I want us to see where it came from and notice a few things from it. It says, greatly Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. Hear this. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now I want us to notice a couple things here. They're expecting military and, a, and a, what would naturally be a horse and, a, and a, a, a military leader. And yet here we see him riding on a donkey and rather than rallying the troops, it says he cuts off the, the war chariot. He does away with the battle bow. And what does he speak? He speaks peace to the nations. Well, what about Rome? Look what they're doing to us. He speaks peace to the Romans. He speaks peace to the Gentiles. Yes, he does come bringing salvation, but he doesn't do it the way a natural human mind would ever fathom. He brings it through humility and he brings it through ending wars with people and, and, he, and he brings peace. And then look at verse 11. It's, it's so profound. It talks about the blood of the covenant. Jesus would bring salvation. He would bring peace by shedding his own blood for the nations, by not conquering through strength and triumph, but by, but by laying down his own life and spilling his blood and purchasing with his blood this, this salvation of the new covenant. This group wanted one thing from Jesus and yet he gave them something else. This king is so different then the natural human heart would, would want for a king to be. One of my favorite theologians, A.W. Pink, he points out the humility of Jesus. I want us to, to listen to a few sentences here. When we think about our king, listen to what he says. I'm talking about the humility of Jesus. He says, notice it 
in the men selected by him to be his ambassadors. He chose not the wise, the learned, the great, the noble, but poor fishermen for the most part. Witness it in the company he kept. He, he didn't seek the rich and renowned, but was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. See it in the miracles he performed again and again. He told those he healed to go and tell no man what had been done for them. Behold it in the unobtrusiveness of his service. Unlike the hypocrites who sounded a trumpet before, before them, he sought not the limelight, shunned advertising, and disdained popularity. Jesus is not an ordinary king. He's not a king of this world. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. He's a humble king. He's making a statement here as he comes into Jerusalem this way. Now the next response I want us to see is the confused, the confused disciples. Let's read verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now I want us just to point a, a few things out. First of all, this was no accident The death of Jesus was no chaotic, what is happening, some great injustice God couldn't fix. These were written about him hundreds, if not thousands of years before they happened. This was the plan of God. They were written about him. Also just notice and remember that the Old Testament and its prophecies were written about Jesus. We shouldn't separate the old and the new and think the new is all about Jesus. The old is about Jesus. They were written about him. I also want us just to take courage and be be encouraged that if you've ever been confused about the Bible, you're in pretty good company. These were men who would go on to write the Bible. And even they didn't understand what was happening. They couldn't grasp it. And there's there's something here in the phrase, but when Jesus was glorified, That's really profound for why they didn't understand. Remember, Jesus was glorified. It speaks to both his death and his resurrection. And after he was glorified, what happened to the disciples? Jesus sent the Holy Spirit after he, he said, I need to be glorified so then I can give you the gift of the Father. I need to leave so that the Spirit of God would come. And so when Jesus died and rose again and the spirit of God fell on these confused disciples, all of a sudden it made sense. The spirit of God helped them understand what scripture meant. And I want us to to notice something here for, for us, for our own application. Listen, these guys had the Bible. They had it. They even knew it but they didn't have the help and illumination and assistance of the Spirit of God. And we'll be like these disciples if if we have the Bible and we study the Bible, and yet we have not the help of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Spirit. We need both of these things. We need them to go together. We won't even grasp what is so clear if we don't have the help of the Spirit of God. So 
We see the political response. We see the confused disciples. Third, I want us to see what I, I, I like to call the hype hunters. The hype hunters. Does everyone know what hype means? Yeah, right? Like hype. Like, yeah, right? If, if you don't, I, I can't. It's like excitement. It's like momentum. It's like, yes, this is the hype hunters. Um, let's look at verse 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. This is a a crowd, the crowd of the Jews that we've seen pretty much throughout this whole book. This crowd that gets excited by miracles. This crowd that gets excited by crowds. This crowd that gets excited quickly moved by human circumstances and momentum. But this is also the same crowd that will turn on Jesus in just a few days. Jesus saw this hype and he, he could see through it. In fact, I want to read out of Luke 19. We hear, we, we get a little zoomed in picture at what was on Jesus's mind as he approached Jerusalem right after the triumphal entry, when he looked at all of these people who were praising him. Luke 19, 41 to 44, look what it says. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus looked at them and he wept. These are people who are motivated by hype and excitement and miracles. Listen, nothing wrong with miracles. But, but they're called signs in the gospel of John because they point to Jesus. These people just like the signs for the sign's sake. They just couldn't believe that these amazing things were happening. They didn't see Jesus. They didn't understand the sign's purposes to show who Jesus really is. And one more picture of this crowd I want to read out of John 19, verses 14 through 16. John 19, it says, this is as Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate comes out to the crowd. Verse 14, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, and listen to this, these words, behold your king. Same words they said. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Church, I want to encourage and exhort us not to let hype be the fuel we rely on for our walk with God. Nothing wrong with it. It happens around Jesus sometimes. But hype will quickly mislead us as it misled all of these people. That hype can be turned in a matter of days 
The crowd's movement can be turned in a matter of days. You know, what would your walk with Jesus be like if, if there was no hype for a whole year? Maybe a whole decade. Maybe 50 years. Could it last? What's sustaining it? What is fueling it? What's building it up? What's, what's breathing life into it? If we're just looking for the next movement and momentum and popularity and crowd, we'll so easily be misled or, or even, even disappointed when, when we're trying to meet with God and there's no emotional hype and, and why isn't this happening? There's far more to walking with God than the, the hype of the crowd. And so we've seen the political response. We've seen the, the confused response. We've seen the, the hype hunters. And finally here, we see the response of the ambitious. In verse 19, John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And you can like feel the disappointment in their words. Look, the world has gone after him. You can feel the frustration. Some commentators think that when it says, see, you see you're gaining nothing. It's, it's some of the Pharisees who have been more aggressive, getting mad at the, the less aggressive Pharisees, the ones who said, let's just let it play out. Let's see how it goes. You, you see these frustrated guys saying, see, it's not working. While we're here doing nothing, here Jesus is getting all the attention. The whole world is going after him. These men enjoyed and, and hungered after power and prestige. And now this man, Jesus, is robbing them of all their attention and all their people. You know, there's another man in this gospel whose, whose power and prestige was also lost by Jesus. Do you remember who it was at the beginning? It was John the Baptist. He had an amazing ministry. People were going out to him by the droves. Even the Pharisees were going out to him. There was hype. There was excitement. They were repenting. He was baptizing. And then suddenly Jesus shows up and people start, you know, checking out his church. They start going over there and the disciples of John say, John, look, they're going to him. They're going to Jesus. But unlike the disgust of the Pharisees here, what does John say? He says, Praise God, I must decrease so that he can increase. I exist to decrease so that he would increase. The purpose of my life and ministry is to get people looking at him and away from me. He said, I'm like the best man at a wedding. Listen, it'd be creepy if the best man didn't want the bride looking at the groom. No, I want her looking at me. Don't I look good in my suit? That's not, that's, not, that's not the goal. The goal is that the world would go after Jesus. The goal is that people would look away from us and look at Jesus. Here we see the selfishly ambitious wanting their own attention, their own power, their own prestige. That's the motivation for their ministry. And yet what a, what, a, what a better example we have in our brother John who said, I, my ministry is so that people would look at Jesus. My heart is that people, the world 
would go after him. And so, church, would we be able to say, hey, I just want people to see Jesus. I want people to to glorify him. Whatever I can do to bolster that, may it be. And so, church, as we began, I want to close. Fear not, for your king is coming. He is coming. He came. He conquered sin, Satan, and death. He is able to overcome any of your current fears. And church, he's coming again. And I just want to ask you, is he your king? Have you bowed your knee to him? Is your heart that the world would go after him? He's coming again. Lord, we just say that you are king and you are worthy to be praised. Who is like you, Jesus? Who is like you? You are our king. You are the king of kings. You are ruling and reigning. And yet, Jesus, you blow our minds how you do it. That you came on a donkey. That you came as a baby. That you came to offer your own life, your own righteousness to your enemies. And you would take on their sin and the wrath that they deserve. That you would, you would take that, you would drink that cup, you would pour out your life on the cross. Lord, if any of us have set up any kind of political idols, would they fall today at the, at the feet of Jesus, who is our King? Lord, if we're confused, if we struggle to understand you and your ways and your word, would, would your spirit help us today? Lord, if we are too prone to find and look for a crowd and hype. Jesus, would you deepen our faith and our walk with you that it would not be dependent on anything other than you, Jesus, and who you are. Teach us, Lord, to grow in discipline. Give us a hunger for your word that we could jump on a reading plan and, and, and train our bodies and souls for godliness. We'd ask your spirit to help motivate and fuel us by things that are not passing away, but by the the means of grace, these gracious things you've given us, your word and your spirit and the church and fellowship and confession of sin, taking communion together. And Lord, would you just, just remove any ambition for our own name, for our own position, our own privilege. Give us the heart of John the Baptist who says, I just want people to see Jesus. Lord, would would people in our own lives go after you because because of us, because of our faithfulness? Lord, I pray that we could say people are going after Jesus. The world is going after him. The nations, those who don't yet know him or believe in him are going after Jesus. Would you do that, Lord? Thank you that you came and you are coming again. Now, Spirit, as we worship, would you continue to magnify the person of Jesus in our hearts and in our minds? Would we worship you? Would we confess any sin to you we need to? Would we be real and honest with you? You you desire a pure heart, Lord. Make our hearts pure before you now as we worship you.